morning, church. My name is Joseph. Uh, please join me as we read from Judges uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 17 to 24. You can follow along in your Bible apps or Bibles or on the screen above. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. <clears throat> For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please, give me a little water uh, to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went, to, <clears throat> so he went in to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the reading of the word of God. All right, well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Good News. Uh, sorry, that's my old church. <laughs> welcome to True North Church. I, so I, I always catch myself. I don't know why. This time I, it just came out. Okay, I wasn't thinking. But, um, yeah, you know, a few weeks ago, my daughter went off to science camp, uh, my, my firstborn child, and this was the first time that she was ever been away from home since she was born. So it was an emotional roller coaster for us, and, uh, you know, it was like, it was like out of a, a, like a, a drama because it was like they were on the bus, just sitting on the bus, and it was raining, and I'm, like, holding my umbrella, and she's, like, looking out the window, you know, and then, like... All the other kids are smiling and laughing, and she's like looking at me. She's like, I don't want to go, you know, and like, and it's like tinted, and then I'm like, you know, there's like all these other parents, and they're, and I'm like, you know, I, I can't cry, right? So I'm just like sitting there, and I, I went home, and it was like very emotional. I was like, I went into her room, and I was like, oh, she's gone, you know, and I was like looking at her room, looking at her, you know, stuff, and then, and I noticed there was like post-it notes, and I was like, oh, like her handwriting, you know, I was reading her post-it notes, and then one of them was like, oh, remind dad to read chapter one of Hunger Games. You know, she had uh, written that post-it note and, and put it on her desk. And, and the reason why she wrote that was because a few months back, she really got into uh, Hunger Games, the, the books. And she kept asking me, like, oh, have you read Hunger Games? And I was like, no, but I watched the movies. And she's like, oh, can, you should read it. Can you read it with me? And I was like, uh, no, thanks, you know? Um, and she's like, please, just, just, just read it. It's really good. I was like, no, I don't think it's good, I, it's, it, and I don't want to read it. And she's like, she was begging me for a long time, and she finally said, like, can you just read chapter one with me? And I was like, okay. And I, and I only said okay just so that she'll stop asking me, you know? But every, every day she'll come, hey, did you read chapter one yet? I'm like, no, not yet. And she kept asking me over and over and over, and then eventually she stopped asking me. And I was like, phew, my plan worked. Until I read that post-it note. And I was like, oh, my goodness. 
You know, and, and I start thinking about, oh, like how oftentimes, like, you know, especially parents, we, we say things uh, and, and our children cling to those words. They, they cling to those promises, right? And, and I was thinking about, oh, how many times have I let my children down? And, and how, how long does it take for, for someone to uh, stop believing in something or stop believing in someone, right? And I, and I was thinking about this, and I, I thought, oh, maybe uh, science can tell me uh, the answer. And I, re- I was doing some research, and I realized, and they said that um, there's real no set formula uh, on how long it takes for someone to lose faith in something or someone, right? And, and, and there are various factors, uh, such as the strength of what someone believes, like the initial faith that someone actually places in, the amount of evidence and support that either contradict the belief or support the belief, uh, and just the emotional ties that somebody has to that belief, right? So even if there's a lot of evidence against what someone actually believes, if emotionally you are attached to it, then it might take a lot longer, a lot more evidence to go against what you are emotionally tied to. So, you know, for example, I am very emotionally tied to the Los Angeles Lakers. So despite all evidence, I believe that they're going to do very well in the playoffs this year, okay? Just as many, um, you know, Warrior fans believe the same thing as well, right? Um, and, and there's a, a lot of different re, uh, factors to that. But I try to, you know, do a little bit more research and think, well, neurologically, how, how does it actually play out? And, uh, you know, through some research, I found that the, the prefrontal cortex plays the most critical role in our decision-making and belief formation, and this is the region of the brain uh, that is involved in weighing uh, evidence and considering multiple options and making a decision based on current and past experiences. And so the new information that we encounter, if it contradicts our beliefs, our brains also experience kind of a cog- cognitive dissonance, uh, which can cause discomfort, uh, uncertainty, and even just like anxiety and frustration based on the new information that enters into our world. And with this new information, um, it it, it over, if it overwhelms the prefrontal cortex, then our brain starts losing confidence and our faith in something or someone actually decreases. And this can happen in, a, in an instant or it can happen over a long period of time. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because oftentimes uh, when I think about the characters in the, in the Bible and I think about the Israelites, especially in the Old Testament, I, I was always very prideful and, and I, I judged them all the time. And I always thought like, how... How dumb are they that they constantly lose their faith in God? Why is it that they constantly fall back into idolatry? And why do they constantly fall into the same cycle of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, right? And I fail to realize that oftentimes um, God works in his very own specific timing, which may not align with the impatience of our human timing. And for the people of Israel, um, and, and as we've been going through this story of redemption from, from the beginning, you know, to up to the point right now in Judges, you know, thousands of years have passed. And even from our last sermon when we talked about Moses and the Exodus uh, up to this point in Judges, generations and generations and generations have passed since their experience in, in the wilderness and their experience in, in the Exodus. So is it really fair for us to judge the people of Israel? You know, I started empathizing with them, like, man, if, if, if I was them, and, and, you know, like, I'd be waiting for a long time, like, I, I would lose faith in God, too. And I think it's really important for us as we think about and just see this story, and we're going to kind of dissect this story in Judges chapter 4, we're going to see the realization that 
as people, we are very quick to lose faith. We are people who oftentimes fail to see um, the faithfulness of God and his redemptive purpose is oftentimes not aligned with what we feel is good timing. You know, and, and it's not, uh, you know, oftentimes we're, we're, we're all, everything is end of day, right? Like EOD, get this done by the end of the day, right? We, we think that every single day it's something should be accomplished, but God, he, he, he's outside of our time. And not only is he outside of our time, but then we also see that among the people of God, and in the course and in the story of his redemption, that he accomplishes his redemptive purpose through the most unlikeliest of people. That is oftentimes not the most polished. It is oftentimes not the people that we think or we assume that God will use, but that God uses very unlikely people to accomplish his will and accomplish his glory. So we're going to see this in the story of Deborah. Now, uh, initially I said, hey, um, scripture reader, we're going to read Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through, uh, Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24, and then I, I read it again, and I was like, oh, there's a lot of hard words, and it's a very long passage. I didn't want to do that to the person up here. So um, I, I'm going to, uh, you know, summarize some of the things that are going on, but in Judges chapter 4, we are introduced uh, to the very fact that the people of Israel have again done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and, and that the Lord has sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And that the commander of his army is Sisera, who has 900 chariots made of iron. And that he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Okay, so this is the background that we find ourselves in in Judges chapter 4. The people of Israel have again done what is evil on the side of the Lord. Uh, and oftentimes what that means is that they've fallen into idolatry, that they have no longer people who are faithfully believing in the promise of God, but that now they are seeking out the world and culture to see are there other things that can fulfill us and give us what we desire and what we want. And so they go after idols. They go after the things of, of this world. And because of that, there is consequence to their sin. Now they are being oppressed by the Canaanites. And specifically, this general, Sisera, he is very cruel. He is oppressing them. And then now we are introduced to a character named Deborah, a prophetess. And she is introduced as someone who is judging Israel at the time. Now, for those that may not know or are unfamiliar with what a judge is, uh, we are not talking about like Judge Judy. We're not talking about someone who has a gavel and just, you know, judges between two parties. Uh, in the Old Testament, a judge was a military leader, a spiritual leader, someone who was being, uh, who would be elected by God to direct and guide the people and nation of Israel away from their past sin and back towards faithfulness. Okay, so it's in some way they are, um, you know, kind of like the, 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 the mayor or the governor of that nation. Uh, they are the spiritual leader. They are uh, the military leader. And Deborah is described and, and introduced as the judge of Israel at that time. Now, for other, for, for other contexts, um, you know, the most famous judge is Samson, right, the guy with the long hair and if you guys grew up in church or went to Sunday school. So this is the judges that we're talking about. Now, what we see is very interesting because God, um, I mean, throughout the Bible and throughout the Old Testament, if we're, we're very, uh, you know, specific about Scripture, um, the Bible, based on when it was written and according to the culture in which it was written, 
is, is very progressive and shows and highlights the fact that uh, it elevates females and women uh, at the same level as men compared to other nations and other writings. Um, but now here we come in Judges chapter 4 where we clearly see for the very first time that God appoints a female to be the leader of his people. Now, throughout, up to this point, we've always seen women uh, and men both in positive and negative lights, right? And, and we see women as, as very important characters in the story of redemption, but this is the very first time that a female actually has a position of authority and leadership within God's redemptive story. And as Deborah is described as a prophetess and a judge. Now, as we read and as we see this story, we see that there's a very clear difference between Deborah and the people of Israel. In Deborah, we have someone who has complete faith and trust in the word of God. In the people of Israel, we have people who have lost faith in the word of God. And the reason why I believe this is, is seen here. Now, Deborah, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali. That's why we didn't have the person read this, okay? Um, and she said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So now, just by the very wording of this and the fact that it is written in a, as a question form, Deborah is challenging Barak. Barak is the general of the people of Israel, and you can sense just from this passage that there is hesitation and that there is fear within Barak, that he doesn't completely trust that God would ever deliver Sisera and his army into their hand, and rightfully so, because Sisera has 900 chariots of iron. But Deborah, in her wording as a prophetess, as the word of God is relayed onto her, she has no doubt that God will accomplish what he says he will accomplish, that God will do what he says he will do. And for her, there's no doubt in her mind and there's no question why Barak should not obey this command. Very contrary to the people of Israel. Because we have to think about why would the people of Israel fall into idolatry? Why? What is the reason why a nation that has seen miracles that God has performed, why is it that they would fall and worship other gods? Because slowly, as more and more evidence in their minds has come that maybe God will not fulfill his promise, that God will not deliver them, that God will not give them the land that was promised to them, that God will not give them peace, that they start reaching and seeking other methods to fulfill their wants and desires in this world. They see their neighbors, the Canaanites. They see them prosper. They see them have uh, success. They see them have land. They see them have military success. They see them with a king, and they wonder, oh, maybe they have something right. Perhaps... We are missing something, and we need to do what they're doing. See, that is the lack of faith that we're talking about. But Deborah does not lack faith and completely trusts and believes in the word of God. I think when I wanted to kind of put this into our context, I realized this. Um, 
many of us, especially if we grew up in church or if we're serving in church, we mistaken faithfulness with dutifulness. We mistaken faithfulness with service. And the reason why, I, and, and we, we say this in our everyday language, right? Uh, I, you know, oftentimes I, well, I want to thank the faithfulness of our worship team who comes here, you know, early every Sunday to practice, you know, and, and we, so in our minds, we think about faithfulness as, as an act of consistency, as an act of doing something for God, or as an act of, of serving others. You know, I, I, I always say that, oh, our, our Sunday ops team is very faithful, right? They come here early every Sunday. They set up chairs. You know, they, they you know, get the, the snacks ready, and, and, and they put up all the signs, and, and they do it without complaint. They're so faithful, right? Or, or our Sunday school teachers, you know, are, we go, man, they're so, they come here early. They, 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 you know, decide to worship earlier than everyone else so just so that they can spend time uh, sharing the gospel and, and, and teaching and sharing the love of God to our students. And so we, when we talk about faithfulness, oftentimes we we are really talking about people who are good at fulfilling obligations, right? Uh, even for, uh, you know, me and Pastor Eugene, we, when we do Bible studies or have classes, we go, oh, we know who are faithful and who are not faithful. Meaning, like, we know who comes, like, on time every week, and those who come for the first week and then they stop coming, you know? And, and so that's how we describe faithfulness. But what we're really describing is people who are good at fulfilling obligations, so when we think about how can we be more faithful to God, oftentimes in our minds, we're always considering how can we do more for God? Or how can we consistently keep up the obligations or the promises that we made to God? But that's not what we are seeing here. The people of Israel at this time, they are still very dutiful in certain ways because they are still upholding some parts of the covenant where they are practicing circumcision they are still <clears throat> offering their sacrifices to Yahweh uh, they are still you know observing the Sabbath and and I'm, I guarantee you that they are upholding all Ten Commandments to the best of their ability all at the same time adding on to it following after idols and seeking to do other things that might make their life easier what they failed at is believing and trusting that God will actually fulfill the promises that he has made. That God will actually continue to do what he has claimed he will do, which is to bring redemption to a people under the oppression of sin. So when I think about faithfulness in our context, I realize that many of us, especially if you are here today, and especially if you are serving as many of us are very good at fulfilling duty. We are very dutiful Christians. But even if you are a dutiful Christian, you might be lacking faith. Because we might be serving. We might be part of Bible studies. We might faithfully go to community group. We might faithfully uh, serve in different ministries. But the very moment some sort of hardship or difficulty enters into our life, we lack the faith and trust that God is present and that God is the one who is sovereign over that situation. The word of God is very clear. He said, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. 
that even our worst and the most difficult situations in our lives are, are being placed so that God could work in us. Consider it all joy when you face various trials and, and, and difficulties, James writes. And yet when trials and difficulties enter into our lives, we think, oh, God is not here. Or maybe it's my sin, therefore I need to serve more or, or change and, and do more things. That is the opposite of faithfulness. So not only does Deborah give us a clear example of what it means for us to live a life completely trusting in the word of who God is and what he says, sets out to accomplish, but we also see that God um, chooses a very unlikely hero in this story. Okay. Uh, so not only do we see the faithfulness of Deborah, uh, but we see the courage of another woman, a woman, and not just a woman, but a Gentile woman, okay? as she is the one who ultimately uh, slays General Sisera. Now, um, I, I think every time we're in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, I talk about how like, the Bible is not boring, all right? The Bible is absolutely not boring. It, it, if, this, if Judges chapter 4 was an HBO Max show, like, they, even HBO might censor some parts because it, it's, it's wild, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a fun, fun story. Um, Deborah has made it very clear to Barak that God would deliver the people of Israel, but she has also made it very clear that he will not give the victory into Barak's hands, that he will give it into a hand of a woman. Now, if you're reading this story uh, as the people of Israel at the time, and you already saw that Deborah uh, the first woman leader being uh, introduced, you would assume that Deborah would be the one in whom God will deliver victory to. But that's not the case at all. In verse 11, um, there is kind of an interjection of a new character that is introduced. It says, now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobad, the father-in-law of Moses, who had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananaim, which is near Kadesh. Okay. You're like, what did I just read, right? So basically, let me tell you guys uh, briefly what's going on. If we're watching a movie, we see the people of Israel being oppressed. We're introduced to Sisera, and he's, he's a cruel general. He's, you see him riding around in his chariots, and like, you know, all the people of Israel are like, ah, and then they're like crying out, God, help me. And then we're introduced to Deborah, and we see like this, 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 you know, this elegant, you know, strong prophetess. And then she's having a conversation with the general of Israel's army and saying, hey, why are you afraid? Hasn't God said that he will deliver King Jabin into, in, into your hand? And then Jabin, and, and Barak is like, I'll only go if you go, you know? And she's like, I'll go. And then scene cuts. And it's out in the desert. Here's a little tent. And then we see Heber, the Kenite. And you're like, who's this dude? Right? And then we're introduced to him. And then we're introduced to his wife, Jael. And then we learn that the Kenites are actually descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And that the Kenites, have, as a tribe, have a covenant with the people of Canaan. That they have a, a pact, that they will be peaceful. But Heber, the Kenite, breaks away from that pact. 
And because of his uh, connection with Moses' father, you know, like, I mean, they're descendants of Moses' father-in-law, they are more faithful and they are more connected to the people of Israel. So they, for, therefore, they break away from the rest of their tribe and they go out to a, a different place far away and they decide they're going to settle there because they do not want to be connected with the, Can uh, the Canaanites, but they want to remain faithful to the history that they've had with Moses and his people. Now we're introduced to a completely new character, but you're like, but these are Gentiles. How is God going to, why is God introducing us to, to, to heathens, to Gentiles? And we see the story unfold. Sisera, he hears that the people of Israel have gathered an army and that they are in Mount Tabor. Um, even though Barak, the general, is, is filled with fear, uh, he, he, his fear is quelled as Deborah has said, I will go with you. Uh, they go into Mount Tabor. Sisera, as a prideful general, decides, I'm going to go get these guys. Now, you have to understand uh, why chariots were so, such an awesome weapon during that time, especially in this region. Uh, in, in this region, there was a lot of flat ground. And for chariots made with iron, what they would do is they, the chariots would have an expert driver. Um, on, that dry, uh, on that chariot, there would be an archer. So as a formation of army and infantry men would form, the archers are already shooting arrows and cutting down some of the men. And then these chariots are so fast, they would just run through the line, causing creation and breaking the formation of infantry. And not only that, on the chariot are probably people with spears or swords, and they're just cutting people down. They're almost, you know, it, it's like just you know, a, a hot knife going through butter. And not only that, because they're so quick, they're able to outflank and maneuver around their enemies. Now, this is only so if you're on flat ground. Now, the reason why the army of Israel is in Mount Tabor is because they're at an advantage. Sisera should have been patient, but in his pride decides, I'm going to meet them where they are. It destroys the advantage that he would have with chariots. Now, Israelites have the higher ground. Uh, in, in a mountainous, regional, non-open area, they're able to hide and, and you know, do guerrilla warfare tactics. That's my guess. And eventually, they start winning. They start winning this war. And so Sisera has to run away on foot. Now, this is where we see um, the difference between Barak and a random Gentile female. Barak is the general of the army of Israel. Right? He has a very high position. And he didn't get this, you know, just because he's, I'm assuming he didn't just become the general out of nothing. He was probably a, a good fighter. He probably had good war tactics. He was probably someone who was respected. He's probably someone with, with high integrity and good character. And yet when Deborah the prophetess gives him the command that you need to gather your men and go to battle, his first response is, I ain't going unless you go with me. I'm not going to go unless you go with me. See, it wasn't enough for Barak to hear the word of God being preached to him. He needed physical evidence. And in some way, he, he wanted the presence of Deborah there because he believed that she, she is a prophetess. Like if she's there, then God is there. Because in his mind, there's still this idea that God is not omnipresent. So he was filled with fear. Now, 
in contrast to that is a Gentile housewife living out in the wilderness with just her family in just a tent. The only defense that she has is a tent peg. Barak has an entire army of 10,000 men. Jael is not a warrior, not a soldier, not a general. And now we have this incident or this event where Sisera, running away on foot, comes upon this small encampment. He sees this tent. He recognizes that they're Kenites. And for him, he's like, aha, I found friends. My people have a pact with the Kenites. So he enters into this tent, and he says, can you let me in? Jael lets him in, right? And he's like, he's tired. I mean, he just went to war. He's like, I need to take a, can I get some water? She's like, here, have some milk, you know, right? Warm milk to put, put the baby to sleep, right? And Sisera falls asleep. And there she sneaks up, grabs a tent peg, drives it through his temple, killing him. Now, here's the, here's the description. She drove a tent peg through his temple to the point where the tent peg is now lodged into the ground. Um, so it, it, it literally means that she crushed his head. She crushed his head. A man, Barak, who was fearful to go into battle is contrasted with a Gentile female who now crushes the head of the most dangerous general in that region. And what we see is this. Through the courage of jail, we see that God is willing to use anyone, the most unlikely of people, to accomplish his redemptive purpose. And the reason why I bring this up is that many of us, um, I mean, we... No matter how successful you might be in your careers or, or in your education or whatever it is that you do, we all struggle with imposter syndrome, right? There, there's this idea that, hey, maybe we're not good enough, right? Uh, and I think that's especially true in the spiritual sense where we always assume that we're not holy enough, that we're not spiritual enough, that we are not good enough to be used by God for his purpose. And, and, and you know, like, I look at my, I go, what, how am I a pastor? You're like, I'm not holy enough, right? Uh, some of you might be, have been asked to serve in certain capacities in different areas and be like, me, I'm not holy enough. We always assume that the only people that are holy enough are, are the super missionaries and the super pastors. You know, especially in our social media world, uh, we, we see influencers, we see celebrity pastors, we see people who are very well-spoken, very articulate, who are very, you know, uh, well-manicured, and we have, and, you know, authors and, and, and people who are, are biblical scholars or, or people who have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, and we assume only they can be used by God but that is contrary to the stories and to the story of redemption that we see for God is always willing to use the most unlikely of people to accomplish his redemptive history to accomplish his redemption who would have ever thought that Deborah would be the judge of Israel for she's a female in a patriarchal society, in a world where women were considered less than slaves, we see a female leader of the chosen people of God. It wasn't Barak. He was not, he's not the main character here. And not only that, God doesn't use the likely hero. 
he doesn't redeem Barak, and he's like now filled with courage. He hunts down Sisera, kills him, wipes out the people of King Hazor or King Jabin of Hazor. No, he uses a random Gentile female to crush the head of the oppressor, to liberate the people of Israel from their oppression. And now here we sit, many of us, perhaps you're wondering and thinking, how can God ever use me? Perhaps you're thinking and wondering, I, I don't know the Bible enough. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not, you know, smart enough. I, I don't speak well enough. God can use any of us. And I'll be very frank. If he can call me to be a pastor, like, I, I can't imagine what he can do with you guys. Because it is not about our abilities, our talents, and our skills. But it's about the power of God and his faithfulness to accomplish the plan of redemption that he has given and, and, and proclaimed ever since the beginning of time. Can we have faith in that? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Paul writes. He doesn't say how eloquent is the tongue of someone who can preach the gospel. He doesn't say how, you know, good-looking and, 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 and audience-commanding is, is someone who faithfully preaches. No, he says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, who bring good news. Feet are, feet are ugly, right? Especially in the, in the time that it was, it was disgusting. This is the dirtiest part of the body. And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Because he understands that God uses the most unlikely of people to accomplish his, his redemption, redemptive purpose. So the encouragement that I have for you all is this. God wants to use you. God desires to use you. God, God sees in you what we oftentimes don't see in ourselves. A redeemed child of God who has the ability and who, whom God desires to use as means to edify and encourage the people around us. Now, the last point is this. Uh, we're, we're, you know, going through this story and, and the sermon series on the history of redemption, and we're realizing that throughout the Old Testament, and especially Scripture, it's one continuous story of how God accomplishes purpose. Right, and here in chapter 4 of Judges, it might seem like a, just a random story of, of, of a battle that is happening. But again, it's this cycle, right, of, of humans falling into idolatry, having faith, a lack of faith in God. God inserting himself to bring redemption to his people. And it's this continuous story between the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right? Again, the Canaanites are descendants of Ham, right? Ham is, is the son of Noah that, you know, was basically showing that he is the seed of the serpent. Uh, Ham's son is Canaan. That's where the people of Canaan come from, right? Uh, here's the Canaanites trying to destroy the Israelites, and the Israelites at war with the Canaanites. It's the seed of this woman versus the seed of the serpent. And when we go back, we see two women being highlighted here, and, and that should remind us that, you know, in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, uh, with Adam and Eve, right? Eve is the one who does not believe, does not trust in the word of the Lord. 
God said, do not eat of this fruit, for anyone who eats of it will surely die. The serpent comes and says, will you really die? She eats the fruit and says, Adam, eat this fruit. You surely will not die. Here's a woman who completely does not believe in the word of God. And now here's Deborah, who contrasts, believes the word of God. He will deliver the king into your hands. And as God gives the curse to Adam and Eve and the serpent to the serpent, he says, he, you will bruise his head, but he will crush your head. Uh, he will, you will bruise your heel, but he will crush your head. Right? That is the, the, the very first proclamation of the gospel that we're waiting for. We're waiting for the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent. And what do we see here? Jail a woman, a Gentile woman, crushes the head of the oppressor, crushes the head of a Canaanite general to remind us that in God's plan of redemption, he will send ultimately someone who will crush the head of the serpent to alleviate and to liberate us from the bondage and oppression of sin. And so in this story, the ultimate hero that we're reminded of, the one who is the most unlikely of saviors, is Jesus Christ. He is not a general like Barak. He is the son of a carpenter, right? And I've said this many times before, he's not like a cool carpenter. Most likely carpenters during that day meant they're like day workers, someone who could find odd jobs. That's where Jesus comes from, the son of a day worker. Doesn't have social clout, doesn't have political clout. He is someone who is not seen as a, a, you know, a highly educated person but comes from a lower class. And yet, he is the one chosen by God to fulfill his ultimate plan of redemption. His heel is bruised as he hangs upon the cross and dies for our sins. But he ultimately comes back to life and resurrected and crushes the head of the serpent and liberates all those who place their faith in him from sin and death. This is the ultimate hero of the plan of redemption. This is the ultimate hero that brings us the salvation that we desperately need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that is faithful, that you are a God that does not change, that the plan that you've instituted from the beginning is the plan that you fulfilled through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, as we are reminded of that story and as we're reminded of that truth, help us to keep our faith in that truth. Help us to believe that you are a God that will do everything that you say you will do, that you are a God that will be everything that you say you are. And may that be the very engine and heart that drives us to believe in you through all the trials and difficulties that enter our lives. God, I know that many of us are struggling with different things, that there's different pains, that there's different hurts, there's relational stress, there's career stress, there's financial stress, but through it all, help us to believe that you are a God that is on, that is ever present and ever for us. In Jesus' name we pray.